This morning's scripture reading will be taken from Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 21 through 28. And that's page 836 in your Red Pew Bible. 836, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And it reads, And he went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And an unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. His commands, even, even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. We are blessed here at Katy with a number of talented song leaders, but we're gonna miss Larry and Tracy and their family. Larry's last day, I understand is today, is that correct? And um, they're moving um, to Cincinnati and we're going to miss them tremendously. Make sure, by the way, as a congregation, we have a tradition. We, we give families who are moving away a book and we invite everybody to sign it, to give your well wishes. There's a book out there in the foyer, and if you'd like to sign um, and, and give some well wishes to Larry and Tracy and their family as they leave, please do that. We're going to miss them. The miracles of Jesus ought to make a difference in our lives. And maybe we ought to start this morning by asking this question. Why should I believe the miracles of Jesus? If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice that, it, that those books are full of records of accounts of stories about Jesus performing miracles. But why should I believe that those things really happened? I'll give you a couple of reasons. First of all, because the Bible indicates that with God, all things are possible. Mark chapter 10, verse 27. We believe as people of faith that the God that we serve is able to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to cause the blind to see. We believe that God is able to cast out demons. We believe those things about his power. A second reason to believe in the miracles of Jesus is because we believe the Bible is true. All of it. Every divinely given writing is God-breathed, the Bible says. That's the claim it makes for itself in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Everything else that the Bible has ever said proves itself to be true. Therefore, based on that, we can have confidence that what it says about the miracles that Jesus performed, that it's telling the truth about those things as well. Why should I believe the miracles of Jesus? Number three, because I'm putting my faith in the witnesses who recorded these things. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John concludes his gospel account and says, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of witnesses, but these are written so that you may believe in the Son of God. 
These are written so that you might understand who he is and what he's all about. But he did a lot of other miracles as well. And brothers and sisters and friends, it ought to count for something in our minds that people who saw Jesus' miracles, they saw him raise the dead. They saw him heal the sick. They went to their sometimes violent deaths convinced that what they had seen was real and that who Jesus claimed to be was authentic. And we can put trust and confidence in those witnesses and what they stood for and what they did. Number four, why should I believe the miracles of Jesus? Because even his enemies believed his miracles. Even his enemies. You know, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nobody ever sticks up their hand and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a trap door. That's how he did that. Nobody ever stands up and says, that little girl wasn't really dead. He didn't really raise her. She was just asleep. In fact, they laughed at him when he said that in Mark chapter 5. In John chapter 9 and verse 16, as they were trying to figure out who he is, they thought he was a sinner. And one of the things they said in John 9, 16 was, how can a sinner do signs like this? It just doesn't compute. It doesn't, doesn't work out in the way we think. And so even the enemies of Jesus believed that he was doing things that were miraculous. They couldn't find any other explanation. They couldn't find any, these were not tricks. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, he preached to a hostile crowd. And one of the things he said in Acts 2, verse 22 was that Jesus was attested by God to you by signs, miracles, and wonders which he did in your midst. And you yourselves know that these things are true. In other words, the crowds, the masses that knew about Jesus, nobody said he's a charlatan. Nobody said, he's just a trickster, he's a fraud. Nobody said that about him. And on the day of Pentecost, nobody raised their hand and said, wait a minute, Peter, we know that those signs were not real. They had seen the evidence. They were convinced that Jesus had done these things. Now what they needed to do was draw conclusions about who he is and the implications for their lives. So when we think about questions regarding the miracles of Jesus, why should I believe that these things are true? There are a multitude of reasons. And every one of us ought to give the miracles of Jesus some serious study and contemplation. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to talk about the very first miracle that's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Just to set some background for you, the Bible, and by the way, Mark, he likes to go really fast. Mark's telling a story, and he knows he's going to lose his audience's attention, and so he's, he's telling story after story after story, what Jesus did, what Jesus did, what Jesus did. And Mark just jumps right into the earthly ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist was preaching. Here comes Jesus to be baptized. And once he's baptized, his earthly ministry begins. He calls some disciples and he begins to preach, Jesus does. The time is fulfilled, verse 15 of Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is off and he's preaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's preaching about repentance. He's preaching about the good news. And then the Bible says in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, Jesus, after calling some disciples, goes into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue and taught. And the Bible says that they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This guy's teaching is different from what we've ever heard before. 
And it's not just the content, it's the manner of his teaching. He's saying, I say to you, you need to behave this way. You need to repent. You need to turn to God and believe in the kingdom. He's saying those things, and he doesn't sound like a scribe who just from a scholarly distance talks about the Bible in an academic sense. No, he's telling us we need to repent. And then the Bible says there's an interruption, verse 23. There was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. What can we learn about Jesus casting out this unclean spirit? What are some things we ought to think about as God's people? Because if all scripture is written for our learning, and it is, then even accounts like this have some things to teach us that we need to contemplate. What do we learn from this account? Number one, we learn, biblically speaking, that demons in the first century were a real problem. Demon possession was a real problem in the first century. It was something that seems to have coincided with the miraculous era, the time in which miracles were being performed, the time in which miracles were evident. And so these people understand that what's happened to this man is that he has an unclean spirit. As you think about the demons and demon possession, some things of note that come from this passage and some others. In the first place, as you notice demon possession happening in the Bible, demons are, biblically speaking, personalities. They have minds, they have wills, they can believe things, they say things, they have personalities. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James says to Christians, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You think about that. James tells us by inspiration that there are these beings called demons and that they believe in God so much so that they tremble at the thought of him. In Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, John talks about some spirits that come out of the mouth of the dragon, and he says these are demons who go to work signs in the world. In other words, they have personalities. They have goals. They have purposes that they want to achieve. But what else you learn about demons is, as you look at Mark chapter 1, that they can have conversations. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 23. This man with the unclean spirit comes into the synagogue and he cries out and the demon within him says, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus talks right back to the demon. I know who you are. Come out of him, he rebukes. They have conversations. In Mark chapter 5, verses 8 through 13, Jesus has a conversation with not just one, but a legion of demons. We are many. And they ask him permission to do some things, and he gives them permission. And so again, there are conversations that take place. These are not just some kind of energy force, some kind of impersonal wave. They are real. They have personalities. There's a difference, by the way, a distinction that's made in the Bible between demon possession and disease. Sometimes demon possession manifested itself in physical maladies. For example, in Mark chapter 1, this man is convulsed, the Bible says. But there's a distinction that's drawn. If you're looking at Mark chapter 1, look down in verse 34. A distinction that's drawn. Jesus healed many, Mark 1, who were sick with various diseases 
and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. So the scripture indicates that there's a distinction made. People have diseases, they have physical maladies, they have problems that are of a physical nature. And that's different from, that's distinct from possession by demons in the first century. It's a different phenomenon. Matthew 10 verse 8 will confirm the same idea. There's a distinction drawn. You also see that demons, biblically, are usually contrasted with Jesus or with his disciples in the book of Acts. They're contrasted with Jesus. And what you notice is, first of all, that the demons know who he is. If you look at Mark chapter 1 verse 24, the demon says, we know who you are. And in Mark chapter 1 verse 34, he did not allow them to speak because they knew him. Where'd they know him from? How did they come into familiarity with him? The Bible doesn't spell that out for us, but it's fascinating that the demons often said things about Jesus that people refused to say. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to torment us? They were acknowledging things about Jesus that people were really slow to get on board with if they ever did at all. That's interesting. The demons also dreaded the power of Jesus. They dreaded the power of Jesus. According to Mark chapter 1 verse 24, have you come to destroy us? He's not saying that, the demon's not, in a mocking sense. Have you come to destroy us? There was fear, there was trembling. And again, James 2.19 indicates that that's the posture, that's the attitude of demons when they're in the presence of Jesus Christ. They tremble, they believe, and they know that God has authority and power over them. This was a real phenomenon in the first century, brothers and sisters and friends. This was something that actually happened to people. And it took a miracle, it took miraculous power to release people from this malady, from demon possession. So notice this secondly, as you look at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, there was a problem that one particular demon caused on this occasion. Notice what happened beginning in verse 23. Jesus goes into the synagogue. It's fascinating to me that the Bible just kind of casually mentions in a number of places that on every Sabbath day, that was the day that the Old Testament uh, Jews were commanded to come together and to remember God and to, and to rest from their work. On the, every Sabbath day, Jesus was present in the synagogue. That was his custom. That was his habit. And the Bible indicates in Mark chapter 1, verse 23, that that's exactly what Jesus was doing. And so they'd come into the synagogue and there would be a reading of the scriptures. There would be worship that would be offered to God. There would be a, a, a homily, a, a message that was given to the people, an exhortation that, that dealt with being a righteous person, honoring God, bringing glory to him. And as everybody is in the synagogue on this particular Sabbath day in the city of Capernaum, all of a sudden, this man with an unclean spirit comes in. And the Bible says that he cries out. And one of the things that you notice about the way that the devil works, he loves to be disruptive, especially when people are trying to focus on spiritual things. He loves to be disruptive. And so he comes in and he cries out and starts talking to Jesus. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. What have you to do with us? Let us alone. 
And you can imagine the commotion that it must have raised. And I wonder if this man had been to the synagogue in the past. And I wonder if people kind of knew what his problem was. But the idea is this, there's disruption. There's an unsettling. Stop listening to God's word. Stop paying attention to worship and those kinds of things and focus on something else. The Bible in other places commands us to do all things decently and in order. The Bible says that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. One of the things the devil likes to do is to disrupt us, to distract us from what's really important. Notice what else this demon does. He is unwilling to leave. Mark it down. The devil does not leave people on his own accord. He doesn't just say, well, I'm finished doing my work in this person. I'm finished influencing this person to do evil. I'm done. I'm just going to walk away. That is not the way it works, brothers and sisters and friends. The Bible commands us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. James chapter 4 verse 7. And so it was with this demon-possessed man, possessed in a supernatural way. This demon wasn't leaving unless Jesus did something about it. Notice as well, even when Jesus rebukes the demon, even when he says, come out of him, the Bible says in verse, one, in verse 26 of Mark chapter 1, when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. It's dramatic, but it's also insightful. Convulse the man. You can learn a lot about Satan and about his ways and about his intentions from this phenomenon of demon possession. It happened in the first century in the age of the miraculous. It happened in the time when Jesus was, was here on earth. I don't believe it still happens today. I just don't. I don't find that evidence in experience. I don't find that evidence in the Bible. But I'll tell you this. Some of the things you learn based on what happened to this man also have implications for our lives. And here's something that all of us need to think about. The devil never improved anyone's life. He never did good for anybody. There are people who embrace the ways of the devil. There are people who believe the lies of the devil and they want to follow the ways. But he never improved a single person's life in any way that was substantial or meaningful. Never did. He only does harm. He does not do good. He is the father of lies, John 8, 44. And so, this man who is possessed by an unclean spirit, he needs deliverance. He needs cleansing. He needs healing. And when you and I have the influence of Satan and we allow that into our hearts and our minds and our lives... When we follow willingly the things that we know are sinful, the things that we know are wrong, we need healing and deliverance and cleansing. Because if we're honest, we have to admit biblically and experientially, sin does not profit. It does not lead us to anything good. This man needed help. And so as you look at this account, the demon cries out to Jesus, tells the truth about Jesus, which I also find fascinating. The demons never cursed Jesus. They never even used curse words, much unlike what modern movies would have you believe. No, they told the truth about Jesus. 
Everything they said was true, even if they hated to say it. And then in Mark chapter 1, verse 25, look at what the Bible says Jesus did. This demon comes into the synagogue. He's causing a commotion and uproar. And Jesus, very simply, the Bible says, rebukes him. The word rebuke is an unusually strong word in the Greek language. And it means that Jesus reproaches, that he chastises, that he has authority, and he uses that authority in a way that is very clear. He rebuked the demon. And here's what he said, be quiet and come out of him. Jesus did not need to bring in any holy water. Jesus did not need to get a ritual book of incantations and a rite of exorcism in order to cast out this unclean spirit. Jesus did not need to call for help or support or reinforcements before he cast out this demon. Jesus, who had been teaching authoritatively, authoritatively spoke to the unclean spirit in this man's body and the unclean spirit unwillingly obeyed. He did exactly what Jesus commanded him to do. You know why? Because there is power in the words of Jesus. Just like a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Jesus stilling the storm, when Jesus spoke to the wind, the wind obeyed. When Jesus speaks to demons, the demons obey. There's power in his words. When he speaks to you, what do you do? When his word tells you something that you don't like to hear, something that is contrary to what you think life ought to be like, what do you do? When Jesus speaks, creation obeys. Notice this. The demon convulsed the man and came out of the man, and the Bible says there's an immediate effect. Notice what the effect of the miracle was on these particular individuals. In Mark chapter 1, verse 27, then they were all amazed. You and I need to be amazed by Jesus. Sometimes we read passages like this, and because Mark is going so fast in his account, sometimes we just read right from verse 21 to verse 28, and we say, okay, he cast out a demon, let's move on to the next story. We would do well as God's people to spend time in our imaginations, putting ourselves in the scene, thinking about what it must have been like, thinking about the sights and the sounds of what was going on. Because I'll tell you something, if you will pay attention to what Jesus is doing, you'll be amazed by him as well. He is our amazing Savior, and everything he does is worthy of our praise. Everything he does is worthy of our worship. And so, there was amazement among all. I mean, everybody just looks at each other and says, have you ever seen anything like this? This guy just walked into our synagogue, said, be still, come out of him, and the demon came out. That's amazing. Immediate effect of the miracle, number two. It substantiated what he was teaching. Jesus came into the synagogue and he was saying some things that were kind of hard for people to swallow and he was teaching with authority, not like one of the scribes. And when the people heard his teaching, they were kind of maybe asking in their minds, I wonder what gives him the right. I wonder why he says these things this way. He sounds like he's got a lot of authority. He sounds like he's got a lot of power. But when Jesus cast out that demon, that unclean spirit, all of a sudden, Jesus' teaching has more authority. You see the authority. It's clarified. It's shown. It's, it's brought to reality. And so, as you continue in verse 27, 
they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? Notice in verse 27, their emphasis is on the teaching of Jesus. If this man can cast out demons, what does that say about his doctrine, about his teaching? He's saying some things that we need to hear evidently. And this miracle, like all miracles, it substantiates who Jesus is and it substantiates the authenticity of his message. If Jesus tells us that he is the Son of God, if he tells us that we ought to repent and to obey the gospel, we ought to believe his words and do what he says because he can cast out demons and he can still the storm and he can cause the blind to see. It substantiates his teaching. Notice this, the immediate effects. It reminds us that the words of Jesus have power and if we'll let them, the words of Jesus will change our lives. They will transform us. They'll make us into something that we are not. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 28. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. One of the effects of this particular account, this particular miracle, is that people left the synagogue on that Saturday and they didn't just go home and watch the football game. They went home and they started to talk to their friends. Can you believe? Did you hear about what happened at the synagogue? This guy had an unclean spirit and he came in and the unclean spirit said that Jesus was the Holy One of God and then Jesus commanded him to come out and he did. Can you believe that? Have you ever heard of anything like that happening? Up until now, nobody's been able to cast out evil spirits. But this guy can. And his fame began to spread and people began to realize there's someone worth listening to here. You and I need to realize that Jesus is worth listening to. He's worth listening to because he has the words of eternal life. John chapter 6 verse 68. He's worth listening to because he has power to back up those words. Now, question. John, if you believe that demon possession in the sense that we're talking about it here no longer happens... If you believe that this is not a reality in our experience today, then what's the application for the church? What's the application for today? What does God want us to know? And what does he want us to do based on this particular miracle? I'll give you three things. This is point number four. Three things to think about, implications of this miracle for your life and for mine. If Jesus has power over demons, and he does, if he can speak a word and cast a demon out, and he can, Number one, it reminds us as Christians that Christ has supreme power over all evil, spirits, and magic. And when I talk about magic, I'm not just talking about magic tricks. You know the guy's faking, you know that there's some kind of sleight of hand happening and you know, I, I don't know how he did it, but it's, it's fascinating that he did. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about people who really believe in magic. I'm talking about people who write books full of spells and they believe that if you just chant these spells and if you just light a candle or if you just hold on to a crystal that some good things are going to happen in your life or that bad things will happen to your enemies. I'm talking about that kind of magic. I'm talking about those kinds of spirits, that kind of evil. I grew up in a world where those kinds of things, I didn't know anybody who believed that stuff. 
I didn't know anybody in my experience who, who put stock into the idea that you could contact the spiritual world or that you could, that you could somehow chant a spell or, or, or cause blessings to happen to someone just by saying some words or by using some incantations. We don't live in that world anymore. You can go to a bookstore now and you can find books. You can find instructions on how to do some of these things. And you can find a lot of people in your own experience who believe in some of these things. And what the Bible is teaching us is this. You have, number one, nothing to gain from any of that. Nothing to gain. All blessings that are worth having are in Christ and in Christ alone. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. He himself is the source of every spiritual blessing. You're not going to find any blessing that's worth having anywhere else. Nothing to gain. And number two, there's nothing to fear in any of those things. Nothing to gain in any of those things, nothing to fear in any of those things. Because Jesus has all power. In Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20, that's a passage worth reading for homework this afternoon. But it's fascinating that the Bible mentions in Ephesus. They believed in magic in that culture, in that society. And the Bible says that when people learned about Jesus and his power, one of the things that they did to show that they were sincere about their new faith in Christ is they took all of their magic books and they piled them up in the, in the presence of everybody and they set them on fire. And it was an expensive fire. About 50,000 pieces of silver, the Bible says. These people believe that Christ had supremacy over all of that. You and I need to believe that too. Secondly, what do we learn from this particular passage? We learn that the kingdom of God is always at odds with the satanic kingdom. The devil has power. The devil has authority over those who want to submit to him. And the kingdom of God is at odds with that. The Bible in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11 warns us as Christians have no fellowship, no participation with the unfruitful works of darkness. If something is a lie, if, if a group is supporting a lie, embracing a lie, pushing a lie, it's from the devil. It's from his works. John chapter 8 verse 44, because the devil is the father of lies. We need to be careful. The kingdom of God is at odds. We support the kingdom of God by talking to people about the truth and about the reality of what Jesus is and who he is and what he's able to do in our lives. And number three, what do we learn from this particular passage? We learn that the words and the work of Christ have a purifying, healing, delivering effect. You learn something about the character of Jesus by the miracles that he does. Here comes this poor guy. And by the way, everybody who was ever described as being demon-possessed in the New Testament, everybody was miserable. And Jesus, in his work, when he casts out demons, he takes people from their miserable existence and their miserable experience, and he cleanses them and he purifies them and their lives and their thoughts are better afterward. And that same effect he wants to have in your life today. When we give ourselves to sin, when we give ourselves to what's unrighteous, what's unholy, Jesus says, I can take your life and I can cleanse it and I can purify it, 
But the way that that's got to happen is through my words. You've got to listen to my words and you've got to obey my words because my words have a cleansing, purifying effect. 1 Peter 1 verse 22, Peter reminds the Christians that they purified their souls through the obedience to truth. They listened to the word of God and their souls were cleansed. When somebody becomes a Christian, through obedience to Jesus Christ, his words cleanse their lives. We need to listen to the powerful words of Jesus. We need to remember and acknowledge he cast out demons. He has authority. And oh, what the blessings we can find in him alone. Get your songbooks and open to the song that Larry announced just a few moments ago, the song of encouragement. Just as I am, you can come to God just as you are. Have a penitent heart. Turn away from your sin. Plead that you want the grace of Jesus Christ in your life. Confess that he is God's son. Repent of your sin. Be baptized. Be immersed for the remission of your sins. And Jesus can take your sins away. If you need to make that response this morning or if you need to respond and you want to ask for prayers, if we can help you in any way, why don't you come forward as together we stand and sing this song of invitation.